episode 13 of the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. Our guest today is Ben Barker, who is an application engineer for Xylem and has been there with them for four years, working with the YSI's process instrumentation product lines. He's earned a bachelor's in biology from the Ohio State University and a master's in marine biology from Nova Southeastern University. In his role as application engineer, he assists customers with sensor applications, writes materials for YSA.com, and conducts technical trainings and webinars for wastewater operators and engineers. Welcome, Ben. Hi, thank you, Heather. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We want to remind you to stay tuned for our Wanda's Water Tidbit at the end of the program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. And we've got a good one today. Okay, so just so our listeners know, Ben and I met through AZ Water when we were getting ready to record our presentations for the annual conference. And I really like the topic of your presentation on instrumentation and process controls and so forth. So I wanted to cover it for our listeners. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love instrumentation. This is what I do now. Presenting for AZ Water virtually for the second time in a row. It was funny that we were presenting together. You know, hopefully next year I can actually go in person. Oh yeah, that, we'll meet in person. That'll be awesome. <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay, so let's just dive in. Why is it important? Why is online instrumentation important? And, you know, really it comes down to why do we invest the time and money into it? Online instrumentation, it's our sensors that we have in our wastewater treatment plants and our drinking water treatment plants that are reading continuously. So 24 seven. So those, those are the type of instruments that we're talking about. They're important and becoming more important because we're more and more relying on continuous data. So really, the more data that we have, the smarter decisions we can make. As an example, one of my favorite sayings right now is that online instrumentation provides data. And then, of course, data drives decisions. So that yeah. is what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide the data for, for the operators out there to make the correct process decisions. Yeah. And I have to say, every time I you know, work with wastewater system, I'm always asking for that baseline data. Have you trended it? Have you collected it? Do you know what's happening? Yeah. It's so essential. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> There's a lot of different reasons to use instrumentation, obviously. Mm -hmm. Besides getting like baseline data, uh, they use instruments to operate their process, which can either be uh, making process decisions based on the results of their online monitoring, they can even design the wastewater process off of sensor data. The online instrumentation is really providing just the data to run the process or change the process in the future and design processes. You've mentioned before just how it alerts you to issues or how can we improve this situation? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great tools. Definitely. Especially if you're getting data and trending, of course, mm -hmm. uh, that's going to give you the organic loading information. It's going to give you your nitrogen and phosphorus loading, you know, depending on what you're trying to remove. But all of that is really important to, to even know uh, where you are on like how much you need to remove, how efficient is your removal. And this data does a really good job of just making you efficient as a process in general. So how does this automation help? So yeah, along with getting baseline and data trending, automatic controls of processes are another aspect to this. So with online continuous data, you can use that data to make process decisions without actually having to do it manually. So uh, as an example, if you are getting uh, 
grab sample data, the most mm -hmm. you are going to be able to provide a change or or make a process change to your to your process as a result of that grab sample, it's only going to be as often as you take those grab samples, which you know could be every 12 hours or every 24 hours. If you're going to ship it out too, oh. you know, have someone else do the testing, it's three weeks later. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, three weeks later, or even if you're doing lab BOD tests, I mean, that's five days later, if you're, if you're mm -hmm. doing it yourself. So having online data can allow you to automatically control processes without even having an operator have to do it manually. Instead, we can make it happen automatically so we can adjust things like dosing chemicals, changing aeration based on the amount of DO that's required, or even what your ammonium loading is. We can change those things automatically, which provides a lot of benefits as far as you know, saving money, saving energy, and, uh, and lowering chemical, chemical use. Everyone likes the saving money portion of this. <laughs> yes, it's a big factor, especially nowadays. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially coming out of the year we've just had, a lot of uh, budgets are streamlined. That might oh. be a, a way of saying it rather than saying that. <laughs> streamlined, yes. I, that is much more, uh, I guess, nicer way of putting it. Yeah. So, yeah, the saving money aspect is great. And if you're going to get this instrumentation, having that dollars knowledge of what the instrumentation can save you, uh, can also show like a, an ROI or a return on investment of the instrumentation that you're putting in. But you'll be able to justify your purchase yeah. by knowing that it's going to save you money. I think that's awesome. I always have a section in our conversations now is how do I talk to an engineer about getting instrumentation? And what should I say? You know, what should I think of? What should I look at beforehand? So why don't you just kind of walk us through that? I'm an Operator, water, wastewater operator, I want instrumentation. What do I need to start with? That's a great thing to think about is as if you are an operator and you have a engineer that may have only been to your plant once or maybe not at all, they're going to want some information on how they're going to be able to design your system because you're the one that you as the operator are the one that is going to be working with it. You're the one that has all the knowledge of the plant in general. So you'll need to be able to give that information over to the engineer so that they can design the system that you need. There's a lot of things that go into it, actually. Starting with the, the first one that I can really, that's probably one of the more important ones is knowing your application. With instrumentation, there's so many different types of instrumentation, depending on the manufacturer. You could either have instrumentation that is designed for municipal wastewater. You could mm -hmm. have instrumentation that's designed specifically for drinking water applications. Even if they are the same technology, they may be designed based on the material of the sensor or the algorithms that go into calculating the values. And so it mm -hmm. depends on the application that it's designed for. As an example, with the material of the sensor, if you're putting it in an industrial wastewater application with a high volume of a type of chemical that may not agree with one of your sensors, you would probably want to tell that to your engineers so they know that, that it may potentially damage the sensors if you put it in the process. It's really where the operators are going to have to step it up. They can't just go, oh, that was the engineer's bad. They should have known this was corrosive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not they going to necessarily know, know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or won't even know it's there unless they're aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And even if they are on site and they know the system or whatever, it's still good to say it, to talk about it. Hey, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there's a connection issue, corrosion yeah. issue. <laughs> you got to have that out there for them to know, for sure. 
Mm -hmm. going along along with the application. You also want to know a general idea of what you're trying to do. A way that I would like to say it is what is your goal? Like, what are you, are you trying to monitor uh, your effluent for a particular parameter like TSS or ammonium? Or are you trying to reduce aeration? Having a general mm -hmm. idea of what you're actually trying to do will go a long way to conveying your idea to the engineer so they can pick their correct instrumentation out for you. Yeah. And, you know, whether you want data every five minutes or yeah. once an hour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So all those would be factors into deciding the type of instrumentation that you'll have. Yeah. So going on to like the next idea of designing an instrumentation system and what you need to tell your engineer is you need to tell them what you want to measure. And although you may not know the answer to all of these questions, the engineer is also supposed to have the knowledge to be able to fill in a lot of these blanks. But it'd be good if you know, uh, the more information you can give to the engineer, the happier they will be, but also mm -hmm. the better system that will be designed for you. It'll be more of what you want. So what parameters uh, will help you accomplish your goal? If you do a little bit of research beforehand, perhaps look at some white papers online or a presentation that you saw at AZ Water, for instance, Oh, you may, be, oh, oh. You may, yeah. <laughs> you okay. may come across some information about like what you're trying to do. What parameters will get you there? What are they reading? Say if it's a case study to be able to do what they are doing. For an example, if, if you want to reduce aeration and that's your goal, and you would likely mm -hmm. want to measure dissolved oxygen or ammonium because those are the two parameters that you can control your aeration automatically to fine tune your aeration. Going along with that, and it's kind of along the same lines, is what will you do with this data? Not only what you're going to measure, but what are you going to do with it? So that's where the process control thing comes in. I want to automatically control my aeration based on one of those readings. Or if it's monitoring the effluent, I want a sensor that just reads the effluent data and then just alerts me if it's uh, out of our uh, range and higher than our permit would allow. I also recommend talking to your neighbors that maybe have instrumentation. You know, a lot of associations, a lot of operators know each other. I mean, that's a good place to say, hey, I, I want to measure this. What do you what do you do for it? Yeah, absolutely. That's a I mean, that's a big thing. There's a certain trends uh, depending on the location. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, it seems there are certain parts of the US that may be using this type of sensor or this type of process more. Whereas maybe on the West Coast, they don't need to measure phosphorus, so they don't worry about phosphorus analyzers. So yeah, it's just uh, good to talk to your neighbor to see what they're doing and see how they're doing it. And uh, if that's the same type of thing that you're trying to do, then you can use that information to help you. Very cool. Okay, so how do we want to control and monitor instrumentation? And you know, they're, they're reading it out and writing it down on paper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like there's yes. gotta be an easier way. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily there definitely is. That's a, a very common thing. But when, now that we're entering more into the, I want data now age, mm -hmm. which I think is a great thing that we're trying to, we're trying to get to more of a remote monitoring to where I don't have to be in front of the controller or taking grab samples every 12 hours, writing it down, and then entering it into an Excel spreadsheet. Like we want to move past that. Mm -hmm. So deciding on like a, a controlling and monitoring system, how do we want to look at this data and how are we going to control it? For instance, for instrumentation, especially the online instrumentation that is in this field, the manufacturers, they'll have their own controllers, obviously, in which you plug the sensors directly into their controller 
And then that's mm -hmm. where you can see your local data. That's where you can see what the measurement is currently. And with that, this would be the location where you're going to enter in your calibrations. It's where you're going to log that you're cleaning. Mm -hmm. It's also going to show you if you have any errors or problems with your sensor. Uh, that's where you, you want to make sure that the controller you get from the manufacturer is one that you know, you'd like to work with and that fits your plant really well. On the flip side of that is we also need to communicate with your SCADA system. So uh -huh. we need all of this data that your sensors are gathering. It needs to be sent to your SCADA and shown up on your HMI so that you can see the data from your uh, control room, which is obviously very important to be able to see all those parameters and your process all together. And you can monitor it from there. So you need to know, for instance, how to communicate. So if I'm going to use a 4 to 20 milliamp signal from my uh, sensor controller to the SCADA, am I going to mm -hmm. use your Ethernet IP, Modbus, TCP IP, any of those communication protocols that transfers data from one place to another? Or you need to convey if you already have an existing one with your PLC. If, if you have previous sensors that are already using 4 to 20 milliamp, you're more mm -hmm. than likely going to get controllers that transfer data using 4 to 20 milliamp. So that's a good thing to convey to the engineers just to know, I already have all of this using outputting via Ethernet IP, so I need controllers that can output Ethernet IP. Yeah, or we're going to upgrade and we need to go from 4 milliamp up to Ethernet yeah. or, or, or whatever. Yep, exactly. And I think that's, we're luckily, we're, tr we're trending in that way as well, uh, getting to more advanced and easier to work with communication protocols. Mm -hmm. So that's an uh, exciting sign because that means you can transfer even more data at a more frequent time rather than four to 20 milliamp. You know, it's a single measurement per wire. So that takes a lot yeah, of wiring. Like a blip. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of cool. So I've got all this stuff designed and now I need to look at O&M. Like, how am I going to operate and maintain this stuff? Yes. What do you recommend? That is very important. If you're an operator or leading a team, you want to know the capabilities of your team is. Mm -hmm. How many people do you have on your staff that are able to work with instrumentation? Um, do you have somebody that you can dedicate specifically to the instrumentation to make sure that is properly cared for? You can kind of get a, a feel or I guess a, uh, an estimation for how many hours per week it might take to, to work with a particular system. So it would be great to make sure that your team is able to handle that load. And just know that caring for instrumentation, so maintenance is going to be required for instrumentation. A lot of people would like to think that it's going to be a magic box that provides you numbers without, uh -huh. without any like effort put into it. It is going to require some investment uh, in time, no matter what the manufacturer of the instrumentation is. Oh, yeah. And like there's been lots of times I've been out in the field and they're like, well, our DO is drifting. The first thought Hey, go check that meter. You know, when was it maintained last? And they're like, well, it's been running for the last six years with no problems. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh stress. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yes. okay, well, maybe we got to check it out. And they're like, holy cow, we're, you know, two milligrams per liter lower than we thought or something dramatic just yep. because instrumentation has been drifting for so long. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So it's better to stay ahead of the maintenance game. So having a proper maintenance schedule keep you ahead of the game rather than reacting to issues for instrumentation, such as that, where you notice it's drifting and then you react to the issue. If you are continually cleaning, instance, every month or two, then you would not have uh, ran into that issue. 
Well, and it'll save you time and money in the long run. Yes. Uh, now, you also mentioned in, when we talked about it, uh, the preference for a manufacturer. Yeah. If you have a preference for a manufacturer, you definitely want to let the engineer know, know that. And the engineer can like give their preferences for what they want. But ultimately for a project, if you have, for instance, instrumentation that's already one manufacturer and you mm -hmm. want to continue to stay with that manufacturer, then you should make that need known to the engineer. For instance, are dissatisfied with one and want to skip to or try something new, then that's also a good idea to uh, talk to your engineer about that as well. Uh, if you have a preference, you know, it's a really good idea to just let the engineer know I have a preference for this and it's because of these reasons. And they'll most likely be like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> I, I recommend operators saying something as well because I've been on sites where, you know, the, the as-builts have said they have blank, blank, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to the operators, they're like, oh, yeah, they they installed that. We hate that manufacturer. We never wanted to use them. So we ripped them out and bought just all the stuff that we wanted. Like, So you paid for it twice. Yep, exactly. I've heard that. I've heard that story several times <laughs> in different yeah, parts and, of the country. And I will say, having worked for some larger engineering firms, that we have typically read suppliers or, or manufacturers to choose from. And if what you happen to like isn't on that, sometimes mm -hmm. it's just like, oh, you know, well, crap. Yeah. Now I have to do research or something like that. But if you really, really want it, you mm -hmm. really must insist on it. You must, you can't just say, oh, we'll just replace it later. Because I don't know too many people that have, you know, 30 grand just laying around extra after a build. <laughs> yes, definitely not. Like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, yeah. If you, yeah, if you want something, definitely go after it. Yeah. I'd agree. Yeah, or at least have them explain why they're yeah. they're ignoring it. Yeah, it all it does depend. If a manufacturer has a particular sensor that is really good in a type of application, then you know there's probably a reason behind it for them choosing if they are insistent on a manufacturer. Yeah, but speak up. Either way, speak up is what I'm mm -hmm. going to say to operators. <laughs> Let people know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how about caring for this instrumentation? I'm like, what should I expect to do? It's good to know the expectations going in. So you have the right idea of how much time you're going to be spending on these sensors. And it all depends on the type of sensors. That is a big factor in determining like some sensors are intensive in the, the amount of care they require and some are very easy. So like a dissolved oxygen sensor, it, the technology is so good right now that it's only a drop in the water, pull it up and clean uh -huh. it every once in a while and you're good to go. But if you are looking at wet chemistry analyzers, so that's the big cabinet analyzers that have all the tubes yeah. and, and pumps and stuff, those will require time to change reagents. It will require time to change tubing and just to work with and get used to most of all is just to get used to working with that type of instrumentation. And if you are not used to working with a wet chemistry analyzer, it'll be a lot different than working with a sensor. There might be a learning curve to it as well. I would say caring for your instrumentation is going to be a huge factor in how reliable your data is as well. Again, as I said before, sensors and instrumentation is not a set it and forget it type of thing. Uh, you will have to care for that. You, you can't see it, but I'm bobbing my head in agreement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and during this, I'm like, yes, yes, yeah, it's I agree. Of, you know? it's, the, uh, it's one of the biggest things is I do a lot of trainings mm -hmm. and or specifically, you know, face-to-face -face customer hands-on trainings. 
And those are one of the biggest things I try to get across during my training is just how much work is actually involved. And it's not necessarily overly difficult or complicated as it might seem. So it's kind of make it as easy as possible to digest as far as, you know, like what is needed and also, and just encouragement, just because it's, it's not a big, scary thing. It's actually quite simple once you get used to it. And I think, you know, once you've put your hands on it, you know, kind of supported it, cleaned it, operated or whatever with that, I think you really get a feel of what kind of data you're getting out of it. Some, yeah. you know, sometimes I think, you know, data seems so vague sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Once you're in there with the equipment and, and stuff, you realize what it's doing, then the data has meaning to you. Yes, definitely. So, you know, for no other reason is <laughs> that as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you got to love like when it works and you see the trends like from like diurnal flows or like the reaction mm-hmm. of like a process to something that you're adding. It's, it's really cool to see. And you won't see that unless you have online sensors. So it's, it's a, that's part of the reason why I love instrumentation in this, in this industry is that it helps you see the reaction of what we're actually doing. Well, and I've used it as well for uh, customers to go back to industries, prisons, you know, whatever that you know, they're saying, oh, well, we're not impacting you. We're not doing this. We're not. That. And you're like, well, boom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's actually that type, that uh, application is becoming like pretty common, like as far as like, okay, we're going to try to figure out where something is coming from because people are obviously always going to say it wasn't me. But if you can measure it, then you know you have like proof or at least an idea of where things can come from and you can then go to the source. <laughs> yeah. Hunt them down. I mean, I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> they might not like that. Give a verbal warning. <laughs> okay. So what else should we expect? For instrumentation, you definitely want to ensure the correct application and setup. So this is upon startup and commissioning. You want to make sure, again, that the sensor is being used in the correct application. And that's something that we've already talked about but it's something that's still very important. Is it used in the correct part of the process? Is it, you, does oh, it, yeah. you have the right measuring range like for this part of the process? Because you may not use the same TSS sensor that measures at the effluent versus the one that's at the activated sludge versus inlet. Yeah, yeah just think about you know, the differences in how the process changes. You might have different measuring ranges or even technologies based on the location of the sensor. That's a good point. Also, depending on the location of your sensor, you could also have different settings. So you want to make sure that on setup that you have the correct settings in for that sensor for the application for many of the reasons that I just uh, just talked about. Do they have consumable parts that I need to worry about? Very much depends on the sensor. As I had mentioned a little bit before, the, all of the measuring technologies are just a little bit different. Well, depending, mm-hmm. there's some are a lot different, <laughs> but some of them are just minorly different but the requirements for each are going to be different depending on what you're measuring. So some sensors do not require periodic replacement parts. Even the manufacturer might have differences depending on the sensor type. Got it. Some technologies will always require consumable parts. So that would be something like an electrode. Anything that has an electrode uh-huh. is a consumable part that has a lifespan and it will run out, as they would say, because it, it uses an electrolyte solution that will eventually be used up. So then you'll have to replace those parts. Same with pH or ORP. Those have electrolyte mm-hmm. solutions that are eventually going to run out. And it is recommended by the manufacturer that you occasionally change those at a certain interval. So maybe every six months or every year 
or every 18 to 24 months. A lot shorter than every five to 10 years then. <laughs> yes, you'll be changing out the entire sensor by, by those times. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Every five to 10 years. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's not many replaceable parts that are going to be lasting that long. Yeah. Like the automatic cleaning mm-hmm. or you cleaning it. Oh I, yeah. I, I prefer automatic because then I don't have to think about it. <laughs> Doesn't everybody. <laughs> but uh, uh, cleaning the sensors. Yeah. Cleaning the sensors. That's obviously the, the single biggest factor in maintaining an accurate sensor and reli- and reliable data from that sensor is going to be how it is cleaned, which of course, as we just mentioned, there's several different ways. You have manual cleaning, and then the automatic cleaning options, you have things like cleaning air compressors in which you're blowing a jet of air across across the sensor face, you know, every Uh hour or every couple of minutes, depending on the sensor. Uh, You also have uh, different cleaning methods such as wipers, which can brush anything trying to build up across a, a membrane or a optical window. And then uh-huh. we have other things such as like ultrasonic cleaning, which is a really cool technology where it basically shakes the sensor every couple seconds, which means that anything anything that's building up on that sensor is going to just fall off. So a lot of oh, cool. really innovative, different ideas, different automatic cleaning options are out there. One thing yeah. I would like to mention with cleaning, manually cleaning is very easy if you do it periodically enough. It really should only be about pulling up the sensor, cleaning the measuring window or the electrodes, water or with whatever manufacturer recommended device, and then placing it back in the water. However, if you are letting that go, instead of cleaning it every month, you're cleaning it every six months or even later, or just waiting for it to get dirty, then that's Uh the time where you're going to have to do more complicated or time-consuming cleaning procedures. So if you keep up with it more, it's going to be a lot easier and a lot more time-effective to do uh, more frequent cleanings than if you wait a long time, you're gonna be spending more time doing more complicated cleaning procedures in which you might have to use an acid or an alcohol. So more frequent, the better. So a little more than a little bit of spit in the edge of your t-shirt, the edge (laughs) of your shirt. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Every six months or so. Every six months. Why calibrate? Why verify these sensor measurements? Calibration, it is essential. So every sensor either comes factory calibrated Mm -hmm. or requires periodic calibrations. And of course, again, it depends on the type of sensor. If you have a, for instance, a DO sensor that will be factory calibrated, thanks to the DO technology and how good it is right now, you don't need Mm -hmm. to do frequent calibrations, especially for the online versions that we have. Uh, Many of the manufacturers do not require periodic calibrations because the sensor is so stable that it doesn't drift. With that said, there are other sensors, such as the ones that have electrodes. Mm -hmm. As they lose electrolyte solution, that sensor will start to what you call drift. So it will start to drift and you'll have to calibrate that sensor to that new state of that electrode. So calibrating is extremely important for anything that has an electrode or consumable. There are other uh, sensors that you need to calibrate upon installing the sensor. So like on startup, you can calibrate it. And uh-huh. based on the type of measurement, you will not need to calibrate that until you move the sensor somewhere else. So it will stay, it will not drift. So it just depends on the measurement technology. However, you should be verifying the sensor measurements for all of your sensors. And what I mean by verification is that mm-hmm. you take a comparison 
measurement, so a, a reference measurement, which could be a portable DO sensor to, to uh, verify your, your online DO, or it could be a lab measurement. So you could be taking ammonium lab measurements to be able to compare to your online IAC sensor. Mm -hmm. The only way to know that your sensor is not accurate is if you have a reference measurement that you are also reading. So if you never do verifications on your TSS sensor, like if you never take that TSS lab sample, they don't really uh -huh. know if that sensor is actually accurate or not. So doing that periodically, verifying your sensor measurements is extremely important. And also gives you peace of mind that you're actually getting good data from them. And a lot of uh, lab certifications require this kind of stuff, you know, calibrations and verifications to stay certified, even yes. if you're doing your own personal ones. So I think, I think that's a good thing. Makes you always look at it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's something we should be doing. It's good to trust the sensor, but you should also test it to make sure you can trust the sensor. Just have a few trust issues then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> It's not a bad thing. All right. So what is the future of instrumentation? I mean, like, what are we looking at having come out? In the future, obviously, what we want is the new or improved technologies. So that could be like a new parameter or, for instance, a better way to measure an existing parameter. There's always things out there that we're looking that may have come up recently that you may be like, oh, we need to measure that let's build an analyzer or sensor that can do that. Manufacturers are looking to do those things all the time. Mm -hmm. I think a, a good example would be the uh, uh, THMs, uh, so trihalomethanes. So that would be the organic molecule that is toxic. It's a byproduct of chlorine disinfection. Yeah. The trihalomethanes, so that is a parameter that wasn't always there. We were not measuring that. 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but now we are measuring it because we know that it's something that we want to get rid of or reduce the amount of. Yeah. A better way to measure an existing parameter, if we, for instance, we have the orthophosphate wet chemistry analyzer, it's a, uh -huh. it's a big cabinet analyzer, requires reagents and tubing. One day, hopefully, we'll have a sensor-sized version of measuring orthophosphate, but no one is there yet. <laughs> oh, I would say that would be so sweet. <laughs> it would be, but not quite. I'd, hopefully, I'll see that in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, that's something I can nerd on. <laughs> All right. What is this role of the instrumentation in the digital age? Municipalities out there are always looking to become more efficient. They're always looking to acquire more data. And basically, they're trying to optimize their processes as best as possible in a time where they may not have the workforce that they did before. So that's when being uh, optimized is going to be really important is in the future when we have all this data and we're putting the pressure on them to be even more optimized because we want to save money. We don't want to spend as much money running wastewater treatment plants. We want them to be uh -huh. uh, optimized. With instrumentation, online sensors, we can provide the data for them to be more efficient. So how is a plant going to know that they are meeting their effluent limits unless they measure it. How are they going to know yeah. their, how much BOD they removed over the course of their process if they don't actually measure it? Providing online data for that type of thing can provide you the automatic processes that help us save money, like I mentioned before. Have you heard of the uh, term digital twin yet? I have, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> so as an example, the digital twin is basically the modeling of a wastewater treatment plant. 
So we're collecting all of this data, which is should be mm -hmm. real data from sensors at a wastewater treatment plant. And we're creating a virtual version of that wastewater treatment plant based on modeling. So what we need to do that will be data. And that, of mm -hmm. course, comes from our sensors. And the reason we would do that is because we will be able to model changes in the wastewater treatment plant. So we will have the model which we can predict what is going to happen to the plant if we change a few variables and we actually can change a few variables if we would like to to become yeah, more efficient than before i think i did i did a modeling one with oil and gas in a workshop once ah uh, yes but i it went down in flames <laughs> <laughs> oh, so <laughs> <laughs> and our model just didn't operate because it was the first time I'd ever seen it. I'm like, well, that went down in glory. <laughs> that would be that would be really truly useful, I think. Yeah, absolutely. To be able to kind of, hey, you know, we're going to change this process or change this. Can we optimize with it? I think that'd be cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the future and how we uh, how we become more smart with our water. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I love going out in the field and seeing what you know, what new things are coming in. So I'll, I'll be looking for that. Okay, well, do you have any fun lessons learned? Fun lessons learned from working with instrumentation? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, I have so many. Just gotta, gotta zone in on one. Let's see. Okay, I do have one particular one that you might find interesting is, so these uh, automatic cleaning procedures, uh -huh. a little like tip, I guess, or a lesson learned is that they are automatic, but they aren't foolproof. <laughs> so rather than the automatic cleaning procedures doing all of the work for you, it's rather extending the time in between your manual cleanings. So rather than thinking of it as a, oh, I don't have to touch it anymore. It has an automatic cleaning system. Think of mm -hmm. it more as an extension between the times that you have to pull it up and work with it. Okay. That, that would be one right there. One other thing that I would, one lesson that I, I guess that I've learned is that if you have a team of operators that are working at a wastewater treatment plant, if uh -huh. you can get one of those operators to buy into the instrumentation and that operator makes that instrumentation their like their baby pretty much uh -huh. the instrumentation will have a much higher opportunity to succeed and be useful for them i find that in times where if it's not anybody's responsibility then it's it's not going to get done yeah that's something that i think is there's something to that. I mean, it's not one. It's definitely not 100% true, but I think there is something to that. Having something, somebody own the instrumentation. So having a, a tech, for instance, that's instrumental to the uh, to the success of the sensors. So that is my tip. I would think that's also job security. <laughs> yes, want to definitely. Get rid of the guy that knows or gal that knows all the instrumentation. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, out for sure. Well, I appreciate everything we've talked about, and I just want to transition now to the Wanda's Water Tidbit, part of the show dedicated to my mother, Wanda, and some of the things that she sent to me over the years. But this time you brought up this topic of how the Clean Water Act started. And for some reason, I did not realize you were also from Ohio, <laughs> not just went to school there. I, I am, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, you know, this is a good time. Last year, or last week was Earth Day, mm -hmm. and... Okay, you're going to have to help me make sure I say this right, but it's Cuyahoga? Yes, the Cuyahoga River. Cuyahoga River. All right, the fire that started the Clean Water Act. <laughs> like, literally, this launched industries and careers from this 
fire. Mm-hmm. And so your river wasn't known to be really healthy for a long period of time. And uh, <laughs> quite the opposite, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty fishless between the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. And the Time magazine once described the river as it oozes rather than flows, and in which a person does not drown but decays. Oh, what a great picture that paints. <laughs> I know. I'm like, we can't even tolerate that idea now, but (laughs) (laughs) I hope. (laughs) But, you know, there already been, you know, 12 other fires before this, the fire on June 22nd, 1969. And from everything I've read, you can tell me if I'm wrong, it really wasn't a surprise to anyone that when that oil slick caught on fire, I mean, everyone just expected it to catch on fire at some time. Yeah, absolutely. That's the kind of things. This one wasn't actually, it wasn't a big deal. It also wasn't the biggest fire that they had either. Many of the other fires previous to this one on the, on the Cuyahoga River have caused more damage. And, uh, uh, but this one was the one that caught the eye of a reporter. Yeah. Or before, you know, a million dollars in damage. This one was only, I think it said $50,000 in damage and only lasted 30 minutes. Yep. You're like, only? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for a, for a river fire, that sounds pretty modest. Yeah, I'm like, oh, no. But part of this is we have to understand the mindset at the time. Everyone knew the river was polluted, but they didn't care because it was a badge of honor. It meant that industry was occurring, that they were making money, that we were, you know, building empires and so forth like that. So the mindset was dirtier meant you were working harder. Yeah, it's hard to believe that, but it does make sense in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh. But what's really cool is that, so Cleveland got a new mayor, Carl Stokes. He's the first African-American elected to that position. And after the 1969 fire, he and his brother Lewis worked in Congress to push environmental regulation. So it really wasn't a thing before then. Mm-hmm. After you know, the Times Magazine came out, they were the only one who managed to snap a picture at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like everyone else was like, meh. You know, but Times was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's something but, here. Yeah, yeah. You know, between the public outcry and the Stokes Brothers efforts, we got the Clean Water Act. Yeah. And the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement and the creation of the, our, everyone's favorite, the Environmental Protection Agency as well as the Ohio version of the EPA. And I'm like, just one 30-minute fire changed yeah. you know, the next 50 years. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's like, it's something that we work so hard on, especially in this field, to be able to work in this field and improve our the status of our environment and our lakes and streams and rivers and oceans. It was all from that fire and that article in Times that you know just spurred this whole thing. Yep. In the right time and place kind of thing all came together. <laughs> yeah. I always I uh, say that that's right. Ugh. It's odd to think that that's my hometown spurred this on. And I mean, we still get made fun of every once in a while because of it. You know, someone will be like, well, Cleveland's, you know, your, your river caught on fire. Like, oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that was 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, next, next time I'll rebuttal with, well, Cleveland was responsible for creating the EPA. So there you go. (laughs) There you go. Well, that's awesome. I am so glad you brought that up because Earth Day, you know, it's very important to my kids. Tell my daughter, you know, hey, happy Earth Day. And she got all excited and how we're talking about it in school and all this kind of stuff. With more and more education, it's become more of a thing. Mm -hmm. I I know my editor remembers the the first day. I don't. The first (laughs) Earth Day. You know, we are still learning from this one experience. 
Yeah. And unfortunately, there's been other hallmarks and things that have happened, but I, I appreciate you bringing this one up. It was worth talking about. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I thought that was a good one for the tidbit. Yeah. Well, Ben, I want to sincerely thank you for joining us today and for making us think about more about instrumentation. I was happy to be here. I'm, I was really glad when you asked me. I was like, a podcast. Yeah, I've never done one, but it sounds like a great time. So so thank you, Heather. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad you're with us. And if you would like to get in contact with Ben, his contact information will be located in the show notes. And so to our listeners, we want to thank you for joining us for this episode. And a special shout out to our listener in the Mariana Islands. We hope you enjoy this episode as well. And just so our listeners know, we are working on another episode. I affectionately call it Stump the Chump. I don't know if our gentlemen and operators will appreciate that, but we would love to hear your tricky questions, those difficult things that you had to work through and see what the operators we have on our panel will answer with. So we appreciate your time and I hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.